Hello and thank you for tuning in to the public health benefits of passenger rail. In this episode, we will discuss the field of public health and its scope as a framework for the current state of transportation's effects on public health in Arizona, and identify how building a passenger rail corridor between Tucson and Phoenix can save lives, money, and the environment. Public health is an interdisciplinary field. A few of the central goals of the field and practice of public health are health promotion, health prevention, and addressing the barriers and inequalities within individual and social health outcomes through analysis of systemic structures in place. In the context of transportation, public health efforts at all levels of governance and advocacy have been successful in increasing the safety of automotive vehicles through the advocacy for and policy implementation of mandatory seatbelts, airbags, and other prevention measures that have made the automobiles of today much safer than the automobiles of the 20th century. Public health uses the framing of upstream and downstream factors to help identify where interventions to promote and prevent poor health outcomes are available. The topic of passenger rail transport falls within the upstream factors that lead to the downstream outcome of deaths involving motor vehicles in the United States. In this episode, I will discuss the current state of transportation and transportation infrastructure in Arizona and discuss how the use of a public health framework reveals motor vehicle-related deaths to be a public health problem using the framework of the social determinants of health. The social determinants of health are the conditions in the environment where people are born, live, learn, work, play, worship, and age that affect a wide range of health, functioning, and quality of life outcomes and risks. The social determinants of health are categorized into five main topics, educational access and quality, healthcare access, economic stability, neighborhood and built environment, and social and community contexts. A public health framework for passenger rail deals primarily with the built environment, economic stability, and the community context. Public health data on the quality of life outcomes of death, injury, and stress reveal the increasing dangers our current transportation systems pose to human health and economic burden. According to the Center for Disease Control's mortality data, traffic deaths nationally are the second leading cause of death for children nationwide. In 2022, traffic fatalities in Arizona reached a 16-year high, with 1,294 deaths on all Arizona roads attributable to many different forms of motor vehicle, the majority of which were in passenger vehicles. Think all car models and pickup trucks, as opposed to commercial trucks, motorcycles, or smaller motor vehicles like golf carts. While those 1,294 traffic deaths are a relatively small proportion of the approximately 88,000 deaths in our state in 2022, the 2022 crash data from the Arizona Department of Transportation also reveals there were 120,000 motor vehicle crashes total, with 36,000 resulting in injury and 83,000 resulting in property damage alone. According to data from the University of Arizona Eller College of Business, in 2021, 73% of Arizonans commuted to work by driving alone, versus carpooling, biking, public transportation, or walking. Among metropolitan areas in the western United States, Phoenix and Tucson rank 5th and 7th, respectively, for percentage of residents who commute by driving alone. Transportation emissions account for 36% of all carbon emissions in Arizona, according to the U.S. Energy Administration. Additionally, according to AAA data from 2023, the cost of owning a new car in the United States is approximately $1,000 a month. Car dependency, the phenomenon of driving as the most efficient and accessible means of transportation, indicates that the financial burden of car ownership falls more heavily on low-income individuals and families. Despite this, data from the Arizona Public Interest Research Group in 2014 reveals that Arizonans are reducing their vehicle miles traveled and increasing their use of public transit in cities. 
The public health framework of poor health outcomes reveals four essential components to the problem. The first of which is driving is getting riskier and riskier. The second, Arizonans are very reliant on driving compared to other Western states. Vehicle ownership is expensive. And lastly, people are reducing their car use when alternatives are available. Investment in a passenger rail corridor between Tucson and Phoenix can continue this trend in transportation mode shift on an inner city scale. From a public health perspective, a passenger rail route between Tucson and Phoenix can 1. Increase economic security. 2. Reduce traffic deaths and improve mental health. 3. Reduce the environmental costs of automobiles. And 4. Increase physical health. While an individual who chooses to commute by car will likely not face poor health outcomes directly from their motor vehicle, thanks to vehicle emission safety standards supported by historic public health efforts, the 16-year high of traffic fatalities in Arizona follows the national trend, as traffic deaths are at a 40-year high nationwide. How can we make sense of this, when the most common motor vehicle models continue to receive five-star ratings from the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration? The story of the public health effects of automobiles goes beyond the vehicle. In order to understand the depth and breadth of this issue, we must understand the concept of car dependency. Car dependency refers to the limited transportation infrastructure and options available to an individual in many areas of the United States beyond private automobiles. In metropolitan areas such as Tucson and Phoenix, car dependency is evident by Interstate 10 as the primary way people commute between the two metro areas and the roughly 73% of people who drive alone to work in the state. On I-10, between the interchange with I-17 west of Phoenix and in Tucson where I-10 meets I-19, approximately 7.9 million trips were taken daily in 2022. While not all these trips went the whole way between I-17 and I-19, the construction of a rail corridor as an alternative route between the two cities can decrease traffic, therefore decreasing the congestion, stress, and aggressive behavior that most often precedes a fatal crash. The economic benefits of a rail alternative to the interstate are best understood by addressing the current economic burden of car ownership. AAA data reports that the annual average cost of new car ownership has surpassed $12,000 a year, or $1,000 a month. This is due to a number of factors, including the nature of car purchases as a depreciating investment, which means you do not gain value in owning a car as compared to like a house, higher manufacturing costs and new car price points, and the increased focus by automakers to produce and sell oversized, luxury, expensive vehicles. While not all car owners own a new car, car insurance payments, maintenance fees, parking fees, and gas prices are all costs that make car ownership an objectively poor investment. The car dependency of our built environment leads private motor vehicles to be the most efficient mode of transportation in metro areas such as Tucson and Phoenix, designed to increase automobile efficiency as much as possible at the expense of the efficiency of other modes and the health of the natural environment in which they drive. When the interstate highway system was signed into law in 1956, Arizona had just over 1 million people. As of 2023, the population is approaching 7.5 million. The interstate highway system was expanded with taxpayer dollars to accommodate the car owners in this larger population. However, when roadways are expanded with the intention to relieve traffic, the issue of induced demand occurs. Induced demand is the phenomenon where an increased supply results in a reduced cost, thereby increasing the consumption of a good. According to a 2019 study published in the journal Transportation Policy, Widening roads lead to induced demand on roadways, resulting in more traffic rather than less. Adding a second lane when only one is present can alleviate traffic congestion. But when we look to traffic congestion on the 26-lane Katy Freeway in Houston as an example, 
Even 26 lanes is not enough land to efficiently accommodate an increasing volume of Arizonans who have no realistic alternative but to drive between Tucson and Phoenix. This is not economically or environmentally feasible. Public Health uses epidemiology, the study of diseases, to identify and measure causation factors to poor health outcomes, among other factors. The relative risk of environmental factors can be measured in order to study the causation of a death or other poor health outcomes. To reduce traffic deaths, an epidemiological approach is needed. A study published in Transportation Research Interdisciplinary Perspectives identified kinetic energy as the pathogen in the environment of transportation networks that is the root determinant of an automobile crash resulting in death or injury. The more kinetic energy an automobile has, the greater the chance a crash will result in death. Putting a vehicle that has high kinetic energy in the same environment as a pedestrian increases this likelihood of resulting in injury as well. This approach identifies reducing vehicle speed as the primary way to reduce the fatality of a crash. On highways, reducing speed is not an option. However, we must also account for the decisions of the driver. According to data from the National Highway Safety Administration, aggressive driving accounts for 66% of all accidents on roadways. Aggressive driving is defined as actions that influence the emotional state of drivers, such as horn honking, rude gestures, tailgating, sudden lane changes, and speeding. Aggressive driving is reported to increase when someone is on the receiving end of aggressive actions. In traffic, then, on I-10, aggressive driving is compounded. According to data from Forbes Advisor, Arizona leads the nation in road rage, or aggressive driving. In the high-speed environment of I-10, these data show that high rates of aggressive driving in Arizona are direct contributors to the increasing rate of traffic fatalities. One way we can reduce the kinetic energy in the high-speed environment of Interstate 10 is to reduce traffic by taking cars off the road. Mode shift, or the choice of alternative modes of transportation such as buses or trains, can help ease congestion on Interstate 10. No alternative to Interstate 10 currently exists to reduce the demand, and therefore traffic, between Tucson and Phoenix. While Tucson has an operational Amtrak station, Phoenix does not. There are bus services such as Flixbus and Greyhound that connect Phoenix and Tucson, but they are also bound to I-10. When we take into consideration the largest destinations for commuters between Tucson and Phoenix, the University of Arizona in Tucson and Arizona State University in Phoenix and Tempe are at the top of the list for work, but also for social connectivity. Sporting events are one of the main reasons people commute between these two cities from these schools, where alcohol consumption is common. According to the Arizona Department of Transportation, alcohol-related crashes accounted for 17% of all traffic fatalities in the state in 2022. Additionally, males under the age of 19 are the population most likely to exhibit road rage. Investment in the passenger rail corridor between Tucson and Phoenix is a direct action that can prevent the risky behaviors of the people most likely to contribute to aggressive and reckless driving that result in crashes and death. The negative health outcomes associated with car dependency go beyond traffic deaths and injury. Transportation emissions currently account for 36% of all carbon emissions in Arizona. A passenger rail alternative between Tucson and Phoenix can transport people with much more environmental efficiency than if passengers drove alone. While electric vehicles account for tailpipe emissions, according to a 2020 study from Oxford University in England, pollution from tires can be a thousand times worse than pollution from car exhaust. As vehicle purchases trend towards larger, heavier vehicles, the environmental implications of car dependency without competitive alternatives have an effect on long-term physical health beyond risk of injury. 
Additionally, a 2023 article from Transport Reviews identifies how noise pollution from higher speed traffic has been found to directly contribute to cognitive disruption, sleep problems, hearing loss, and indirectly contribute to stress levels, mental health, metabolic health, cardiovascular health, and overall quality of life. Without increased investment in transportation alternatives, the increased presence of widening roadways in Tucson and Phoenix directly contribute to these poor environmental health outcomes. The high prevalence of sedentary lifestyles in the U.S. is also a health concern associated with the high rate of commuting by car alone. According to a 2019 study in Circulation Research, lack of physical activity is a major contributor to cardiovascular health. With the knowledge that 70% of Arizonans and 87% of all Americans commute by car alone, it is no surprise that 60% of Americans do not achieve goal daily movement, with 25% of Americans reporting no physical activity at all, according to the Center for Disease Control. Cardiovascular disease is the leading cause of death in the United States. Car dependency for a 1.5 to 2 hour commute between Tucson and Phoenix decreases an individual's ability to achieve goal daily movement. Car dependency promotes sedentary lifestyles as it removes the choice of walking or other active transportation, especially when urban design allows for parking as close to the destination as possible. As the population booms in Phoenix and Tucson in the mid-20th century occurred after the advent of the automobile, car dependency is built into the urban planning of both metropolitan areas. However, the current Amtrak station in Tucson is located downtown in one of the most walkable areas of the city. It currently runs on track owned by the Union Pacific Railroad to Maricopa and continues on to Yuma, bypassing Phoenix. Amtrak ran passenger trains between Tucson and Phoenix until 1996, when the station in Phoenix was closed due to a lack of financial ability to maintain Union Pacific-owned track between Phoenix and Yuma that Union Pacific no longer uses and was not willing to invest in the financial upkeep themselves. Resuming Amtrak service to Union Station in downtown Phoenix, which also has a greater degree of walkability than other parts of the city, can serve to connect people to the existing light rail network in the Phoenix metro area. Once the Amtrak train is connected to both Tucson and Phoenix's downtown stations, each city already has existing inner-city public transit infrastructure that can connect college-associated Arizonans to their respective campuses and activities, as well as all the local businesses in between. The Amtrak station in Tucson is within walking distance of the SunLink streetcar, which connects to the University of Arizona campus. The SunLink leads the nation in streetcars that have seen the greatest ridership increase since 2019. The Valley Metro Light Rail in Phoenix already connects to Arizona State University's Tempe campus. The existing location of Union Station in Phoenix downtown is within walking distance of the Valley Metro Light Rail and is also strategically located near Chase Stadium where the Diamondbacks play. Resuming Amtrak service to Phoenix Union Station can help to ensure connectivity that encourages active transportation such as walking and biking, which can serve to combat the high rates of sedentary lifestyles, discourage reckless and aggressive driving exacerbated by alcohol consumption, and the high economic costs associated with car ownership. Building an Amtrak passenger rail corridor is not without limitations. Funding is the primary barrier to success. However, Taxes in Arizona increasingly fund highways where increasing traffic deaths occur, to the tune of $150 million in fiscal year 2023. Estimates from Amtrak officials put the cost of resuming service to Phoenix at $1 million. On December 6, 2023, it was announced that this Amtrak corridor between Tucson and Phoenix will receive half a million dollars in further funding aimed at resuming service. The Arizona Department of Transportation does not currently fund the existing Amtrak route from Tucson to Maricopa. 
Arizona Department of Transportation funding of the Phoenix Station, in combination with additional federal funds, should be appropriated in order to address the public health issues of traffic deaths, environmental health, and the physical health effects of car dependency in Arizona. Amtrak's current model for running the Sunset Limited route through Tucson on track that is privately owned by the Union Pacific Railroad is also an area for consideration. For greater insight on the possibilities and limitations of this public-private partnership, I spoke with Ron Kamakau, a recently retired Amtrak engineer and organizer for Railroad Workers United, about what he sees as the most important considerations to achieving success of resuming Amtrak service to Phoenix. Ron and I discussed many terms. Main lines are the central rail corridors that freight trains run on. Common carrier refers to the obligation freight companies have to carry any cargo, including people. The creation of Amtrak removed the requirement to carry people, with the agreement that Amtrak trains have the right-of-way. Class 1 refers to the big seven railroads that own and operate most of the U.S. railroad network. One of the Class 1s is Union Pacific, who owns the track between Tucson and Phoenix. FRA is the Federal Railroad Administration. In your experience advocating for passenger rail, what have been the greatest barriers? Yeah, I've advocated for passenger rail basically my entire life, and now as the organizer and previous General Secretary of Railroad Workers United, advocating for both freight and passenger rail, a revitalization in this country, not only is passenger rail suffered immensely, but also freight rail. Um, we, we're not moving the tonnage that we did 16 years ago, so something is definitely amiss. Uh, to overcome the barriers, obviously it's a political question, uh, getting both Republicans and Democrats on board with something that should be a no-brainer, uh, facilitates the movement of people in a safe, environmentally sensitive manner from urban area to rural and vice versa, and of course in the case of Tucson to Phoenix, uh, urban to urban areas and takes cars off of the highway, makes for less congested conditions, more expedited movement of people, but yet it, it seems almost impossible for us to, to, to develop a robust passenger rail network in this country. One of the good things is that to some extent it is one of the few bipartisan issues left. There are a number of rural Republicans, for example, who have helped keep Amtrak afloat through difficult political times. Uh, so there is people across the aisle who understand the need for passenger rail. And there's also, you know, outliers where politicos understand that the Northeast Corridor is getting the lion's share of the attention and the funding and so forth. And that's not fair. If we're going to have Amtrak and National Rail Passenger Corporation, it should serve all areas of the country, not just the Northeast Corridor in the megalopolis between Washington, D.C. and Boston, but that we should have trains in places like Phoenix and Tucson as well. You mentioned congestion on highways and the environmental benefits of moving not just people but also freight by rail. Can you speak to some of what you envision could be possible with that transition, not just reducing emissions but also just the safety of the system? What would it take to ensure that health is prioritized in terms of making sure that trains stay on track and that people are moved efficiently without impeding the economic benefit that moving people offers. Yeah, Elena, there's a number of things that really need to be done to the national railroad infrastructure in our country. 
most main lines are still single track with sidings and that means one or the other or both trains generally have to either slow down or come to a complete stop to let another train pass this might have worked a hundred years ago when there was very very limited population uh, but now single track railroads really are somewhat obsolete so we need to double track all of the main lines in the country so that they can move instead of 20 or 30 or even 40 trains a day is about the maximum really that's feasible on a single track railroad uh, once you double track a railroad it doesn't just double its capacity it, it exponentially increases the amount of tonnage and trains that you can move uh, down the railroad. We can also increase speed limits like much of the rest of the world is doing. Generally trains in this country, freight doesn't move faster than 70 miles an hour. Passenger generally doesn't move faster than 79. We could easily expedite and increase those speeds. Also electrification allows for faster acceleration and quicker deceleration. Uh, also more powerful locomotives diesel electric locomotives max out at around four, four and a half thousand horsepower, uh, but electrified locomotives can generate 10 and 12,000 horsepower. Also, an electrified railroad is emitting no carbon emissions. It's extremely clean. And then the power that is generated to put juice in those lines can be generated from wind and solar and other renewables so that trains actually have the ability to run carbon neutral by you know building a more robust double tracked freight and passenger rail network uh, that's electrified so uh, also the rail industry itself decided to run extremely long trains and in running extremely long trains you tie up the track capacity of your division and it doesn't expedite the movement of freight trains, let alone passenger trains. So we need to be running shorter, more manageable trains that have less of a propensity to break down. And if and when they do break down, they can be repaired and get on their way much quicker than a two or three mile long train, which is what the industry is moving more and more towards. So there's a number of factors that have to be dealt with to make it for an expedited, more modern uh, railroad system. Is there a limit on how long Amtrak trains are? Well, Amtrak trains are short, and just by their very nature, passenger trains are much, much shorter traditionally than, than freight trains. A long-distance Amtrak train maxes out generally at around 1,000 feet. There's no, there's no limit. Amtrak could potentially run trains, you know, to 3,000 feet with 15, 20, 25 cars and four or five locomotives if they had the equipment and the demand was there. Generally, uh, what railroads used to do when the demand got high is they would run a second section. So you may have a train that runs with three engines and 15 cars, uh, but if uh, reservations exceed the capacity, they would simply put on a second section and run another section right behind it. What is the risk of an Amtrak train in the same environment as a freight train? Well, traditionally around the world, passenger and freight trains have historically used the same tracks. And in many countries of the world, uh, this is still the case. There are high-speed rails that have been built uh, in Japan and China and in some places in Europe uh, where no freight trains are operating. But we have the biggest railroad network still in the world. It used to be 240,000 miles. We're down to about 140,000, but it's still an enormous network. Most of that track is very underutilized. 
which is to say there's not a whole lot of, of freight trains on it. Really, to have a robust freight and passenger network, you do need to double track the main lines. And running freight and passenger trains on the same track is very common, and it can be done well. There's an example in Chicago. It's three main tracks from Union Station out to Aurora, and commuter trains, Amtrak trains, and expedited freight trains all use these tracks, even at rush hour because with a three-track main line, which is signaled in both directions with crossovers every 10 miles or so, where you can get from either track to either track, it's a surprising just how many trains, both freight and passenger, can move down that right-of-way in a very limited amount of time. In order to maintain track for passenger, is there a higher level of um, safety concern and therefore funding to enforce it that is needed? Yeah, to, to run a passenger railroad entails more maintenance, uh, more upkeep, and just a more, more sound infrastructure. In general, the main lines that are in service that are running 10 and 20 freight trains a day are often quite suitable for Amtrak and passenger operation already. It's important to remember a passenger train is very, very light and actually does very little wear and tear on the rail track infrastructure compared to a big heavy 20,000 ton freight train. Um, so the track has to be kept up to a whole different standard to handle those heavy freights and oftentimes in doing so it makes for safe movement of, of passenger trains as well. If a railroad was going to be solely dedicated to passenger rail the weight of the rail, it can be much less, the roadbed, all of these things can be much lighter because you're running you know, much lighter trains. It's just like on the highways, they say that a, you know, a heavy semi truck does 2,000 times the damage that a car does, even though it doesn't weigh 2,000 times more uh, than a car, perhaps, um, but it does an extraordinary amount of damage. And it's, I think there's a parallel with uh, heavy freights versus passenger trains. So you definitely have to do a lot of upkeep on a main line if it's running you know, long, heavy trains. So. Yeah, and so that makes me think about the common carrier obligation of freight railroads. So Amtrak's creation was partly in concession to absolve the freight trains of having to be responsible for carrying passengers. But within that deal they made with the creation of Amtrak is upkeep of track for passenger rail specifically outlined or is that something that gets decided by the surface transportation board or as individual cases come up of Amtrak needing um, support from the freight trains? Everyone expected Amtrak to fail because in 1971 the interstate highway system was was nearing completion. There was no such thing as the mass congestion on the highways that we're seeing 50 years later. And so the idea was passenger trains were outdated, outmoded, you know, would just go away. And much of it is left to Amtrak to fight it out with the class ones, endless court battles, endless congressional legislation. Do passenger trains have the right over freight trains? Uh, it's not that simple. It's complex. <laughs> um, and so how all of this gets decided is, is not easy for sure. And in places where there is a lightly used traffic lane, 
Sometimes the class one carriers are quite happy to have Amtrak because there's hardly any freight moving. The train will not get in the way of their freight movements because there's only two or three or four a day. So the UP should be, could be, potentially amenable to two, three, five, ten passenger trains running in that corridor uh, every day. Mm-hmm. I'll give you an example. Canadian Pacific owns the track between Chicago and Milwaukee. It is two main tracks with multiple crossovers, and Amtrak runs, I believe, eight trains a day. It's a good corridor. They generally run on time, and I think Canadian Pacific is a good partner, at least in that corridor, because Amtrak is paying rent, and so with 10 or 12 or even 14 trains a day, the Canadian Pacific can manage to weave their freight trains in and out. It doesn't delay them, and they make some money. Uh, In other cases, uh, for example, the Sunset route between New Orleans and L.A., uh, very heavily used, relatively speaking, heavily used uh, freight mainline between L.A. Long Beach and Texas and New Orleans, Uh, Amtrak doesn't meet a nice welcome from Union Pacific. Union Pacific would love to get rid of that train. It only runs three days a week and it often Mm -hmm. runs late uh, because Union Pacific uh, is running long trains and lots of them. The line is yet to be fully double tracked, let alone electrified. And so the freight trains are often in Amtrak's way. So when we talk about putting a passenger train back in service or initiating a new rail route that hasn't seen passenger service in you know 50 years or more pre-Amtrak times um, it all sort of depends on the whims of the host railroad if they're amenable uh, that's a huge hurdle uh, that has been transcended but if, if, if the class one is a hostile, like in the case of reestablishing service between New Orleans and Mobile, Alabama, mm-hmm. uh, it can go for years and years and years. The railroad demanding literally billions of dollars, which is exorbitant, to upgrade the track and so forth, and they can actually, you know, keep passenger uh, trains from returning to the route. Let's not. Let's hope that that is not going to be a factor. And UP benefits to some extent by getting the Sunset Limited off of its main line uh, between Welton and Picacho. And it doesn't really interfere, one would think, too much with traffic between uh, Welton and Phoenix because there's just not that much freight there. That used to be two main tracks last Mm. time I rode it, which was 30 years ago. It's very frustrating because what we need is an expert railroad think tank in this country that's mm-hmm. made up of former railroad officials, FRA people, rail advocacy groups, you know, people who have done this stuff professionally. The railroad from Welton to Picacho through Phoenix, the culverts are there, the bridges are there, uh, the roadbed is there. And in fact, there's rail and ties that are in reasonably decent shape, I would assume, from Welton to Phoenix. So what we need to do, of course, is rebuild, and it's a big, that's a heavy lift from Phoenix West because that track has been out of service, not used, and it's possible all the ties and ballast and some, if not most, of the rail needs to be replaced. So that's going to be reasonably expensive. But comparatively speaking, uh, high-speed rail, it, it's, the comparison is minuscule. 
the infrastructure investment of high-speed rail is what makes it unaffordable. Like you said in the beginning, the bipartisan argument of returning to this kind of what we had originally, especially in the case of the Phoenix station. This isn't some untested, untried, pie-in-the-sky sort of super expensive, you know, tax and spend. What we're talking about is literally going back a hundred years. What we're attempting to do really is to go back to the future. Railroads at one point had the infrastructure, they had the personnel, they had the infrastructure to safely, adequately move passengers and freight from point A to point B. But we have squandered the last 75 years in this country. Instead of building out our rail system, uh, we have retrenched. And so in recent years, I mean, literally 25 years ago, Denver had no passenger trains. Now they have a huge network uh, of trains that come in and out of Union Station and connect with Amtrak to all parts of the city, including the airport. Mm-hmm. Albuquerque didn't have any passenger trains, and now they have the, the, the rail runner. None of this was here 25 years ago. Neither was the smart train in, in Sonoma Marin counties uh, north of the Bay Area. And now Vegas and LA, it looks like, are going to be attached by higher speed rail. Uh, and then Amtrak may also reinstate potentially the desert wind. And so you see all of these major Western cities that are forging ahead with passenger rail. And so this feeds into just everything that's happening in these Western cities. It's not an anomaly, it's not ridiculous. And like I say, ultimately it's going back to what we actually did have uh, before it was all removed under the private enterprise system. A passenger rail investment for public health faces many funding needs. But as Ron said, this is more of a restoration of a successful, historic United States rail network than it is an idealistic dream with no value. Mainline rail corridors need to be double-tracked at a minimum for passenger rail efficiency and frequency of running daily trains between Phoenix and Tucson as part of the Sunset Limited Amtrak route or otherwise. Private rail corridors do not result in the same level of induced demand as public highways because the demand is limited by the number of trains. Building out the track allows for increased speed limits, especially if shorter trains like passenger trains are the ones running. Regular maintenance is needed to ensure safety. Sharing track for freight and Amtrak is safe and routine railroading practice, especially with the level of safety equipment used in railroading. Intercity passenger rail examples in Chicago and Aurora, Illinois, and Milwaukee, Wisconsin show that the partnership between an expanded rail corridor for passenger rail and freight train ownership can serve people without causing congestion on the track. Future focuses for passenger rail's health benefits should focus on developing an expert railroad think tank made up of rail experts. The future electrification of the network can also achieve emissions-free intercity transport, which can support the expansion of renewable energy. Advocacy groups like Solutionary Rail are already focused on how an electrification investment with a double-tracked network can be done without incurring the high costs associated with high-speed rail projects due to high land use investments needed for entirely new corridors versus working with and revitalizing the expansive network that already exists. The public health benefits of rail help inform the need for passenger rail, and rail expert knowledge supports that this is a bipartisan issue that deserves financial support for economic health, environmental health, and the social, mental, and physical health benefits of reducing car dependency.